I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to an exceptional episode of the London Lyceum, as most of our episodes are probably mediocre, except the times that we get good guests to give us good content. Anyway, I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stavaniak. And I'm one of your hosts, Brandon Askew. And we are the podcast that encourages deep and clear thinking. At least we hope it encourages that. Maybe it doesn't, but I think it does, and I hope it does. And we're going to try to continue to make it do that. On today's episode, we want to talk about the topic of biblicism. It seems to be a very hot topic, at least on the interwebs. Uh, I don't know if it is a hot topic in your average church family's home, though it is active, present, and relevant to that church member's home. So whether you know what it is or whether you don't know what it is, I think this episode is pertinent and very, very important for how we understand the Bible and how we understand God. Yeah, man. So Let's jump right into uh, how we're going to define biblicism, because I think this is something that, um, so we're talking about a, a very specific uh, brand of biblicism, because I've yeah. seen some stuff online where the the word biblicism gets thrown around, and I don't think it's being used in the same way that we're using it on this podcast. Because so, biblicism, I mean, biblicism could be a good thing. It right. could just mean you like the Bible. Right. Yeah. You are devoted to the Bible. That's one way to define biblicism. That's not the way yeah, that's not what I we're think it about. should be defined. So there is a way to define biblicism that basically says that Scripture should have priority for all our understanding of life and of God. Therefore, any type of metaphysical commitment, any type of moral obligation, all of it comes from Scripture alone and must be consistent with Scripture. So far, so good. But then what Biblicism does is it silos itself off. It says that anything like an intuition, creed, confession, tradition, or any other source of knowledge about God, moral obligation, or, or whatever it may be, it's incompatible with the supremacy of the scriptures. So fundamentally, Biblicism says that the Bible alone, the words that you find on the page are the only things you can use to understand God and your relation to God. Any that medical, that, that one phrase in there, I don't know if you actually worded it that way, but the way that we, we want to think about it is that metaphysical commitments must emerge from Scripture alone. That's what we're saying that Biblicists believe, okay? But we want to counter that with the classic understanding of sola scriptura which says that metaphysical commitments must be consistent with scripture so um, scripture does still have the priority for all concepts of god but that the categories and the um the way that we talk about things and the words that we use do not themselves have to specifically emerge from the bible itself they just have to be consistent with what the bible teaches so uh, intuition, creed, confession, tradition, and all of these other sources, they're they are complementary to the magisterial rule of the scriptures. That just means the scripture, in the, at the end of the day, imposes its will on those things rather than um, the confessions or the creeds um, being imposed on top of scripture as themselves being the magisterial rule. So um, those are just going to be ministerial guides, which means they serve the uh, supreme guide that is scripture itself. But I, at least in my mind, these two different ways of looking at things that we've talked about, the more like solo scriptura biblicism and the classic sola scriptura, the the big difference for me is that one is saying that you have to talk about things in a very specific way that 
emerges out of scripture and the other is saying that the things that we say have to be consistent with scripture. And that doesn't seem like a, a huge difference, but it actually is. Oh yeah. I mean, it makes a world of difference in how we understand God and how we understand our relationship to him. Um, two examples to kind of give you some context for what's going on here to give you an, to give you understanding of what biblicism looks like. I've picked Bruce Ware and Scott Oliphant. You could pick a number uh, of any other authors. I merely picked these two guys because number one, they're probably well known to a lot of our listeners. Um, and number two, if they're not, uh, I simply, I wrote on them in a thesis of mine. So that was just easy picking. Um, I've got nothing personal against either of them, but I do think the way they interpret scripture here is more consistent with biblicism than it is consistent with the traditional understanding of how uh, scripture should be understood and used. So for example, Bruce Ware, one thing he does in one of his books is he uses the doctrine of God's immateriality, just the idea that God isn't a body. He doesn't have any physical parts to deny other particular anthropomorphisms of God. So the idea that God smells something or he reached out his right arm. He's saying that's not true because we know in other texts that God's immaterial. And that's good. We would amen that. That's we would fine. Agree. Um, because he's saying, look, uh, elsewhere it shows me uh, he's not confined physically. But the problem is when it comes to other doctrines, he doesn't use that approach. Right. So after following this for God and body parts, when he comes to saying, look, it says that God repents in Scripture. He says, you know what? That must be literally true. God adjusts his course of action in response to humans. So in one case, he's comfortable allowing these doctrinal concepts to help interpret texts. But when it comes to this, he suddenly eliminates this, this superiority of Scripture and says, you know what? It's literally here. I can't listen to any other possible reason for what could happen here. For some reason, it's okay there, but now when it comes to here, it's no longer it's no longer good. So it's interesting. It, it confuses me because it's inconsistent, number one. And number two, the way he's understanding it there is going to lead him to be open to open theists. I mean... And he's actually written a book, if I'm correct, against open theism, hadn't he? Yes. So he doesn't want to willingly, it, that just to make sure we're clear he's not willingly trying to um set the ball in the tee for open theism. yeah it's just the problem is i'm like if you can't do this inconsistently you can't apply biblicism when you want to because you don't like the other interpretation and you realize if i cut off their support then they can't argue with me but what that does is it leaves the door open for open theism because open theism can go back and say well look at you know your other texts i know I mean, I obviously use the example of God and body parts. So someone who thinks God is a material being could say, well, Bruce, you say one thing here about God changing his mind, but you're not consistent here when it comes to God and body parts. God has a body. It says he has an, has an ear and a nose. So you can't deny that. If you deny that, you're using other tools outside of scripture to get you there. So I, maybe he, So maybe he'll say that, that God's spiritual nature is something that we see explicitly taught in the scriptures themselves, but um, God's immutability, since we're talking about, you know, repentance uh, up above, we were talking about how um, he teaches that when it, you know, it says that God repents, that he actually does change course and 
change his mind and do something that he wouldn't have done and things like that. That's um, not explicitly taught in scripture. So how would we respond if, if he used that to try to, to get out of it? Well, I mean, I guess that that's a fine way for him to be consistent with biblicism. So in that way, I'm going to attack biblicism and I'm going to explain why biblicism is a problem. Um, and before I do that, I, I want to show another, I guess, example uh, Scott Oliphant, I think he does the same thing when it comes to to change and God, because when he sees literal texts that ascribe anger or change to God, he thinks we just have to attribute these things to God. We can't allow a theological system to to give input on our understanding of the plain literal reading of the text. Therefore, God must somehow be mutable in, in significant ways. But and and he says anyone who who disagrees with him has an anti-revelational bias. But man, I, I think he's just, when, when he's doing that, he's cutting off the typical understanding uh, of how to read the scripture. It's not wrong for me to use reason or tradition or creed or these other things to help me understand what the text is saying. Yeah, no. That's I... not me saying scripture, I'm anti-revelation. It's just me saying, I need help to understand scripture. Yeah, so, so those are two, two examples you but, could come up with an, I'm, I'm sure, you know, if I put this out there and I asked for examples, every single person who's familiar with this could probably tag an example. Yeah. So having looked at those two examples now, tell us why you think that's a, a very serious problem. Well, first it is somewhat more historical. And that's just simply the people who claim biblicism think that they're following sola scriptura. Well, they're not. At least, uh, though they may claim to do that, they're not. Because Sola Scriptura was never intended as a wholesale rejection of all these different tools uh, to know God. Its purpose was simply to ensure Scripture continued to critique and reform all natural objects of knowing. So intuition, creed, community, all these other things are fallible interpreters. Mm -hmm. But they're helpful interpreters nonetheless. I mean, Stephen Charnock, uh, I love what he says here. He says, there is a natural as well as a revealed knowledge. Now, I think a lot of Reformed guys would think, oh my gosh, what, what is he saying? Natural knowledge of God? He says, and the book of the creatures is legible in declaring the being of God, as well as the scriptures in declaring the nature of God. There are outward objects in the world and common principles in the conscience, which it may be inferred. So he And he goes on to say, Nature actually can help lead us to understand God. It's not infallible like Scripture is, but it's helpful nonetheless. So anyone who denies that you know nature can actually be useful is simply going against what history actually said sola scriptura is. And so, so, gonna... so that's the all right. So that, and I think that's important that that we have to establish that what somebody is saying they're doing as Sola Scriptura does not hold up historically as Sola Scriptura. So that's, that's a really big point, especially for people who want to claim um, the Reformation. Yeah, claim, you're not Protestant anymore if yeah. you interpret like a Biblicist. But let's just say somebody doesn't care about Sola Scriptura. Yeah. They don't care about the classic Reformational understanding of Sola Scriptura. How then will we respond to them? If, if that's not going to mean anything to them. Yeah, I've got two more reasons. And obviously I think these are kind of like in descending order of increasing importance and increasing convincingness to, to the person who's a biblicist. And the second reason is those who are self-consciously not interested in 
you know, following this understanding of, of scripture that is not biblicist. Well, fundamentally, biblicism is impossible. It is impossible to come to derive any theological concept from scripture without a secondary means apart from scripture. It's, it's literally impossible to come up with theology on a biblicist framework unless all you do is read the text and parrot it. If all you do is quote the scripture exactly and say no more. But you can't have a robust theology by simply uh, saying the verse and quote. I mean, I know people might get their panties in a wad or something over that, but it, it's true. You can't have a robust understanding of who God is uh, based on just reading the scripture verse alone. That leads you to an understanding of who God is. That is the authoritative, inspired, infallible truth of who God is. But it beckons us to know so much more and to think so much more about God. I mean, even simply the text that, you know, a text that says, for I am the Lord, I do not change. What does it mean that he doesn't change? Suddenly I've left the biblicist uh, house and I am now uh, an anti-biblicist. I mean, evangelicals should simply be aware that they're indebted to this type of interpretation. Think about Paul and James. I mean, you, you come to the fact that one Paul says, you know, you're justified by faith. James says you're justified by works. Well, if you have a biblicist hermeneutic, you're pretty much screwed. Hmm. You need you need more than a biblicist hermeneutic to understand what's going on there. And I mean, who wants to deny the the bountiful insights uh, that come from scripture memorization? Who, who's memorized scripture and along the way suddenly something pops in your your head and you realize, man, there's more there to this meaning than I realized. Well, that's not biblicist. That's against biblicism. So you may recoil at the idea that, you know, I'm saying that there's other stuff that helps interpret scripture, but fundamentally we're all functioning that way and it's impossible not to function that way. Yeah. And I think another point is that, you know, the Bible itself validates these other uses. It validates natural revelation, which is something we saw in the Charnock quote um, that you, that well, that we heard in the Charnock quote that you read to us uh, above, but Psalm 19 and Romans one, they are going to give, um, natural revel- revelation, a, a place in our epistemology. Like those, those are things that we can rely on. Now, obviously we are fallen, but um, Psalm 19 and Romans one, I think actually take into account that fallenness. Um, so that's just, I don't think that's a, a good argument against it, but, but solo scriptura biblicism is going to violate its own maxim by not allowing these texts to speak. So, so we can't just say, well, we want it. We want the Bible alone, the Bible alone. But then when I give you, um, Psalm 19 and Romans 1, you say, oh, well, I, I don't want that. That means something else. Well, then how do you know it means something else? And then you're just going to get into um, a back and forth where I think you're eventually going to leave just quoting Bible verses back and forth one another. Yeah, and I mean, when, when it comes to this, the true question isn't if Scripture authorizes nature as revelation, but how it does. Right. So conceiving of X or conceiving of God apart from nature or apart from revelate, I guess, apart, let's say this conceiving of God apart from scripture does not mean conceiving of God in contradiction to scripture. Mm-hmm. I think that's important. As long as the conclusion is accurate, why does it matter so much what the source is? If it's natural or special revelation, what if, I look out at the clouds and I look out at the sun and I look out at this beautiful sunset and I conceive in my mind 
there must be a creator who did this. Because I didn't have my Bible open, does that suddenly mean the Bible's wrong? That there isn't a creator? Right. Because I conceived of this naturally? And that goes back to the the original point that we made earlier. We were talking about this distinction between solo and sola, is that, you know, does something have to just be um, consistent with the scriptures, which is the sola view, and solo, does something have to actually emerge from the scriptures themselves? And I think your example there about um, the illustration that you gave just about looking at the sky, I think that that is, you know, and, and knowing that there is a creator, that seems like a really intuitive argument to me um, against the the Bilicist way of understanding how we can know anything. I mean, they're, they're, but just be, as you said, just because you didn't have your Bible open in that specific moment, and let's, let's not even, let's take it a step farther. You, you, because they could, they could say, well, you, you had that view because you've, you yourself have actually read the Bible. So that's where the view ultimately came from. Let's just say you're in the middle of nowhere and you've never seen a Bible and did not know a Bible existed. That person who has that belief, it's still a true belief, even though they have no access to special revelation at all. Yeah. I mean, we're not saying don't use the Bible, don't trust the Bible, don't have the Bible as your authoritative rule. All we're saying is don't neglect all these other tools of knowing who God is and how we relate to God. And when you do that, problems arise. You are going to make faulty understandings, faulty claims of God. There are all sorts of open theists who look at, at different texts in Scripture and say, see, God doesn't know everything. See, God changes. See, God is like this because there's a specific text that definitely literally says that. But if you neglect all these other tools of interpretation, you're going to do it to your own detriment and you're going to make really bad interpretations really often. But what might a biblicist say in response to all this? Well, maybe they say 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. Look at that. You're using natural revelation apart from scripture denies the sufficiency of scripture. I see people all the time. This is a problem of sufficiency of scripture. If you don't believe, if you believe in a sufficiency of scripture, you shouldn't be using other analytical tools. Uh Oh, not that phrase. My goodness. I'm not loading that phrase, That's but it, it just comes to mind. That's it. The podcast is over. <laughs> I am not siding with anybody there, but the, the point is simply, well, first of all, I think if we're going to go there, let's just go ahead. I don't think that the side that is, and again, this is the last thing I want to talk about on this podcast, but I, th I don't think that yeah, the we, side... we try to avoid cultural things. The side who is anti-critical you know, race theory, critical theory, I don't think they're saying that analytical tools are bad because they're analytical tools. I think their their argument is, whether or not you think it's convincing, is that the nature of what critical theory and critical race theory is that it cannot be used as merely an analytical tool because it itself is an all encompassing worldview. So sure, that's fine. But in practice, their argument is simply sufficiency of scripture means you can't use other tools. Right now, maybe that's not what they're claiming. Maybe they're more nuanced like you are, Brandon. I but try. The point is, Sufficiency of Scripture does not deny the reality of other tools. Because 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 does not claim that all knowledge arises only from the written revelation. It tells us that it's sufficient 
to equip the believer for good works. So we know and trust that scripture and scripture alone, I don't need anything else to be equipped to be a, a good Christian. But that doesn't mean I don't need anything else to be equipped to be a full knower uh, of all who God is and all of my responsibilities towards him. There are other things that help me, that instruct me, that, that can teach me. I can, I don't fundamentally need anything else, you know, to just live a normal Christian life, but it's impossible to have a full orbed Christian worldview, I think, uh, without utilizing these other tools. And it's assuming that you're using your own reason. I mean, you have a brain. Well, and that, that goes back to even, you know, the point you made earlier about unless you're just going to open the Bible and read it, well, two people can open the Bible and just read it and could come to different conclusions, which then brings in what you're talking about now, um, the use of reason. So it's not even like that just reading the scripture by itself gets you around this problem. It doesn't. Yeah. So you got to get to what's true. There's a difference between a right meaning and a right source. And I think really when it comes to biblicism, their argument is you can't have any other sources. And if you have another source, I'm going to ignore you and block block you out. Whereas my argument is saying you can use all sorts of different sources to help you. What what matters is the authoritative the authority is in scripture itself and the meaning that we're we're discussing. I don't know. I, I think that's clear. I hope that's helpful. Um, I know this is a hot topic, so I'd be interested in other people's thoughts if they have any other, you know, follow-ups or responses or, or you know, ways to describe this, ways to explain this that are beneficial. Um, I'm sure they've got lots of examples like I mentioned earlier. But again, I do think this is a hot topic, and this is particularly relevant, especially for topics like the divine attributes or, or I guess, moral responsibility and different things. I mean, um, I'm sure there's lots of examples that aren't just coming to my mind right now. But the fundamental point is the way we interpret the Bible matters, and it really, really shapes how, ultimately how we end up understanding who God is and, and our relationship to him. If I take a biblicist approach, I'm going to have an anemic, very narrow understanding of who God is, and I'm likely to think that he has f- fingers. Uh, and I don't think any of us want to think that unless it's in the incarnation. Or if you're a Mormon. None of us are Mormons. I'm just saying. They if we God have a Mormon fingers. listener, I would be floored. I'm just saying. They believe God has fingers. Isn't that, that what you said? That's right. He, they believe he has flesh and bones, um, which is really weird and interesting. Indeed. Anyway. That's Biblicism in a nutshell. I hope this was helpful. Uh, I hope this was uh, useful, you know, uh, for your own encounters with others. As, you, as if, if you're a pastor or if you're uh, someone who's aspiring to pastoral ministry, that you can help equip your own church to think through how to interpret the Bible well. Or if you're just a, a if you're a lay member who's not aspiring to pastoral ministry, that this can equip your own Bible reading. That it can encourage that. Again, this is the only Analytic Baptist Confessional Podcast, and we encourage you to stay thinking, uh, to stay talking with your friends about these issues, and uh, we always love comments, feedback about what you think, what you like, what you disagree, what we should talk about next.
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.